Turn to Jeremiah chapter 1, please, in your copy of God's Word. Jeremiah chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 9, and we will read through the end of the chapter to verse 19. So we're reading these 20 verses. Jeremiah chapter 9, I'm sorry, verse 9, verse 19, did I say 20 verses? That doesn't come out to 20 verses, I think it comes out to like 11, 10, something. Jeremiah chapter 1, beginning verse 9. I'll bring out the New King James Version, as is my custom, God's word declares. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms, to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see a branch of an almond tree. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am ready to perform my word. And the word of the Lord came to me the second time, saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot, and it is facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north, calamity shall break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, says the Lord. They shall come, and each one set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all its walls all around and against all the cities of Judah. I will utter my judgments against them concerning all their wickedness, because they have forsaken me, burned incense to other gods, and worshipped the works of their own hands. Therefore, prepare yourself and arise. And speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar, a bron- and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against its princes, against its priests, and against the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, says the Lord to deliver you. This morning I'm going to uh, break a rule um, that I was taught in my hermeneutics class back in seminary days. I'm going to give you a double-barreled um, shot today instead of just a rifle, a single direct hit. Hopefully we're, you're going to be patient enough to go through these two uh, points that are may seem a little bit disjointed from one another, uh, but the text, I believe, demands us to address them together, uh, and so we're going to um, do so, Lord willing. Uh, just don't tell any of my seminary professors. I'm not sure that many of them are still alive, to tell you the truth. I don't think my hermeneutics prof is, so I think we're okay. Um, and that just means that you're just going to have to take a little bit more effort at listening, I think, this morning than uh, normal, maybe. Before we get into our text this morning, let's go, Lord, in prayer together. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us and, again, for the privilege of your word before us. And we pray that as we look into your truth, that you might guide us into it. That we might be willing to follow that guide, step by step verse by verse, uh, truth by truth, that we might uh, please you, that we might walk worthy of the calling which you have placed upon us through your Son, Jesus Christ. 
And as always, we pray for your hand of protection as well during this time, knowing that there is always that possibility, uh, even probability, of us trying to bring ourselves, our ideas, our philosophies, our notions into your word rather than drawing yours from your word. So Lord, we again pray your Spirit's action during this time that we might uh, truly be uh, in your truth. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we have seen Jeremiah's calling uh, last week. We looked at it and uh, probably were a little bit uh, taken aback by the idea of having to listen to a young person uh, who may even be in your own family and having to uh, derive God's word from those lips, and yet this is the one that God has chosen to use in this uh, occasion. Uh, he is not the only one uh, of the, that Israel had, that Judah had to be responsive to. God has sent them numerous prophets, uh, and their messages are similar. In fact, we can very easily uh, share between Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and and look and, and cross-reference many of the passages between them. Um, but Jeremiah becomes one from among the priestly realm. And so his focus and energy sometimes is upon the priests because they had failed Israel horribly. And while others had focused more upon the uh, Levitical area or the uh, social area, uh, others look at the political realm. Uh, we find Jeremiah focusing more and more, really, throughout the course of this upon the priestly service that is not being uh, done in accordance with God's word. And so he's really going after his own family, if you will, his own uh, tribe, his own uh, name. And uh, so we find him being called out of this background to address some of those issues, and he's going to come head-to-head in conflict with several of his own. And we're going to see that played out and uh, the results of that upon the heads of some of his contemporaries. But we come to a portion of his calling that we didn't get to tackle very well last week at all, in fact, really not at all, Uh, and that's in verse 10 following. Before we get into what the word of the Lord is to Jeremiah, we want to finish up this facet of his calling um, because it is going to come up again at the later part of the chapter. And we're going to actually jump forward quite a ways into Jeremiah to see some of the application of this facet of his calling. And we, we recognize very quickly, obviously, that these prophets' primary audience were the people of God. The primary audience for them um, were, for some, the nation of Israel to the north. For others, the the nation of Judah to the south. Um, Jeremiah, of course, is for the nation of Judah primarily. And we find that uh, we can easily get our attentions focused upon that and forget the fact that these men were really speaking to a much larger audience their interest went well beyond the scope of just Judah or just Israel. Uh, When you read through some chapters, especially in Isaiah, and they go through um, country after country after country after country, 
and just go through their hideous sin and what God's intention is towards those nations, we find that the ministry of the prophets had a, a, a global, at least a regional, but a, a, from God's perspective, a global uh, perspective that God is not pleased with the nations around Israel any more than he is pleased with Israel. Uh, they have derived their false worship from these neighbors. And so he is just as displeased with the neighbors who introduced Israel to these false gods as he is with Israel abandoning the one true and living God and going after them. Even if, it's, even if it wasn't an abandonment in our eyes, because we would not see synchronism as abandoning the God of Israel. Uh, they wanted to add these other gods in and, 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 and bring them into sync with each other. That somehow we can serve this God on, on one day and these gods on other days. Um, and we can, we can manage that. And, but if from God's perspective, that is abandoning him. Because the thing that he declares that Israel is supposed to know is that I... And the Lord your God, and, and I only, I'm, I'm the one. There is no other God before me. Uh, and so um, as soon as you add any other gods to the God of Israel, you have essentially abandoned his definition of who he is in your life. And Jeremiah and the, the prophets see that. And, and so the neighbors who are drawing them away and enticing them and the, as well as the Israelites and Judites who are, who are being allowed to be led into that, allowing themselves to be led into that, are just as guilty. And so Jeremiah, it, like the other prophets, is not just isolated in his message on Israel or on Judah. Uh, in fact, if you read through Jeremiah, most of Jeremiah is probably the most isolated uh, of most of the prophets, the major prophets certainly, and even some of the minor prophets, in that he speaks probably the least of the other nations, uh, even though here in this verse we say, we find that God says, I have you over the nations, uh, over all the kingdoms, that your prophetic word isn't just authoritative in one land, it's authoritative for all lands. And when I say, thus says the Lord, it applies not just to one people, but to all peoples. And this is very instructive, because now we find our place in Jeremiah. You say, well, what place do we have in a prophet that's speaking to an ancient nation on the other side of the planet with a whole different culture? Um, well, the fact is, is that when the word of the Lord comes, even to one people that are maybe very dissimilar from how you and I have been raised, even either geographically, chronologically, or, or sociologically, um, we find that it matters. It has authority. And it needs to be understood and obeyed. We need to respond to it. And so we find that nations, kingdoms, are going to be affected by one prophet, by the word of the Lord coming to Jeremiah. And we are going to see it uh, with reference to Egypt. Uh, we're going to see it with reference to uh, Babylon, certainly, because that's going to come out in our text here very quickly. Uh, we're going to focus more on that next week. But we're going to see it envelop all of these other nations, though, as well. 
And we often think, well, the prophet to the nations was someone like Daniel. I mean, he lived over there in Babylon, and almost all of his prophecies were about the nations. And he goes through the history of the kingdoms, and he, and he foretells them as he goes through um, not only Babylon, but Media, Persia, and, and Greece, and Rome. He foresees all of that. Certainly, he's the prophet to the nations that verse 10 has to be applied to. But the fact is, is that Jeremiah has a very powerful message, too, that has a very purposeful objective for all the nations. And that objective is described for us. And it's described in a very deliberate uh, trilogy of pairs. And that is the balance of verse 10. It says, to root out and to pull down to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. And any of us who, any of you who have been involved in construction or reconstruction uh, know that the first thing you do is you don't take a board and a nail out to your building site. The first thing you take, if there's already something there, is a sledgehammer and a jackhammer, um, and you have to tear things down. You have to Take a shovel out there, backhoe in our day, and you have to root it up. You have to prepare the place. You have to break the soil. You have to open up the earth and prepare it for what the foundation of what you want to place there. And God says, listen, Israel, uh, I planted it as a fine, fine thing, and it has gone bad. And so I need you to go out there and root it up. I want you to go out there and... and First of all, to root it out and to pull it down. Because what has, what has creeped in to this nation, what has taken root in Israel, is a hideous thing before me. And so before we can do anything beneficial for Israel, before we can lay any foundation for what my plans are for her long term, and we're talking about not only the return 70 years, uh, later, uh, under Zerubbabel and, and uh, Nehemiah, we're not just talking about that, but even for the, the millennial kingdom, before I can really give Israel any idea of hope and of my plan for their future, that they have uh, a place there that is, that is secure because it is within my promises, before I can share any of that with them, we must first root out this wickedness that is in their heart. And the reason that that is so necessary is because of the climate that Jeremiah is going to encounter throughout these 40 years. And the climate is this, that people have overwhelming confidence, falsely so, that Jerusalem, just because it is Jerusalem, because the temple is there, is is undefeatable. It cannot be breached. It cannot be taken. This is the place of God. Um, And God would never allow this temple to be uh, sacked. He would never allow the walls of Jerusalem to be breached. He would never permit that to happen because this is his place. And so they had this false confidence that no matter how they lived, no matter how wicked they got, that they were secure as long as they were in Jerusalem because this is where God lives. And this is a mindset that Jeremiah has to first attack. Before he can make any headway with these people, he must first address this issue to root out what has 
been rooted into them is this mentality that they are secure. That somehow I am safe because uh, I'm here in this place, and therefore I, I'm okay, and, and I can coast on in, and, and it doesn't matter how I live. And uh, we're encountering some of that ideology uh, in our study in Galatians on Sunday nights. Um, and, and Paul has addressed it there as well as in Romans, the idea within the Christian community is somehow once I receive Christ as my Savior, I have now heaven assured. We take him very quickly to 1 John 5, ignore all the other chapters before it, and we tell them you're for sure going to heaven because you prayed the sinner's prayer, because you've been dunked in some water, and now you are secure, live however you like. And we have this mentality And Paul goes out of his way to communicate that that just isn't real. That's a false security. Yes, I know you used a few verses of Scripture to generate it, um, and I'm pretty sure that anyone in Israel could go back into um, the old other passages of Scripture and into the promises of God to Israel through Moses, through Joshua, uh, through David and Solomon and pick out verses that say, oh, you see, Jerusalem can't ever fall because God says this is my eternal home. And we can build this very powerful position of false security spiritually and then live however we please. And God says, you're going to have to, first of all, deal with that. You have the false security of Israel, this, this, and you're going to have to uproot it. You're going to have to go out there and do that hard labor. And we all see the great excitement of seeing walls go up of buildings and, and, and superstructures being built. And what we don't ever really notice very much or take much notice of, what doesn't really get us very excited, is a bunch of dirt being moved around and all this stuff being happening down in the ground. And it's kind of boring, isn't it? And yet it is absolutely necessary if you're going to have a structure that is going to be sound. So the first thing that he is going to be confronted with is you're going to have to root up. You're going to have to destroy. Uh, You're going to have to pull things down. You're going to have to throw down. Not only within Israel, but even among the nations. Let me jump forward, way forward. Let's go to Jeremiah 27. Jeremiah 27, uh, we have, and really in the 28 as well, um, we have um, Jeremiah addressing the fact of where the nations are going to, what's going to happen, not just to Israel, but to all the nations. And God has told him to put a yoke on his body, and uh, we're going to see what he does. Verse 20, chapter 27, verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord to me, Make yourselves bonds and yokes, and put them on your neck, and send them to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the Ammonites, the king of Tyre, and the king of Sidon, by the hand of the messengers who come to Jerusalem, and to Zedekiah, I'm sorry, come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah, And command them to their masters, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to your masters, I have made the earth, 
the man and the beast that are on the ground by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and I've given it to the whom it seemed proper to me. And now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and the beasts of the field I have also given to serve him. So all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the time of his land comes, and then many nations and great kings shall make him serve them." And it shall be that the nation and kingdom which will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and which will not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation I will punish, says the Lord, with the sword, the famine, and the pestilence until I have consumed them by his hand. Therefore do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your soothsayers, or your sorcerers who speak to you saying, you shall not serve the king of Babylon. For they prophesy a lie to you to remove you far from your land. And I will drive you out and you will perish. But the nations that bring their neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will let them remain in their own land, says the Lord. And they shall till it and dwell in it. And this is what the word of the Lord has through Jeremiah. And so... Jeremiah makes a yoke. He puts one. He makes many yokes, actually. He puts one on his own shoulders to represent his nation. He needs to come under the yoke of this king to the north that we're going to be looking at here down the road extensively. And then he makes yokes as well for all the messengers from the outlying areas around Judah who are congregating there and making some plans uh, to counter Nebuchadnezzar's actions that are coming down from the north. Maybe if we all get together and have a unified front, we can stop him. And Jeremiah shows up at this meeting and he passes out yokes. He says, you put this one on, you put that one on, you put this one on. You take these all to your masters and here's the message that you all need to share as you carry your yoke to him. And as I'm wearing my yoke, We'll have to have yokes when we get to this passage. I'm going to have to make a bunch of yokes and have everybody wear them. It'll be an interesting morning, won't it? When we get there, it'll be like oh, a year from now or something. So I'll, I'll forget, but it'll come up. So you have a year to start making yokes if you want to get on it. You take these yokes to your masters. You have them. You wear them before them, and you say, this is what Jeremiah says, the Lord God of Israel says. What does the king of Tyre care what some prophet in Jerusalem says about his country? Well, he cares because it has authority. And God establishes his authority by saying, I'm the one that made all the earth. And I'm the one that decided to let your nations exist. I have allowed you to have that land because it just seemed proper to me. Now I'm sending my servant. Whether you acknowledge me or not, remember these are the outlying nations that were participating in the service of false gods. 
And God sends them a message saying, you better surrender yourself to Nebuchadnezzar or you're going to pay the penalty. It's not because you're going to make Nebuchadnezzar mad, it's because you're going to make the God of all the earth mad. And you're going to be violating my word through the prophet Jeremiah to you. And therefore, you're going to pay a price. And if you want your land to be laid in waste, then you rebel. If you want to live in your land and be able to plant your crops and at least have a living there, then you will submit to this authoritative truth. And so when we go back to Jeremiah chapter 1 and we see that God calls him not just to Judah, not just to try to deliver them, but really he is giving uh, a message for the whole region and globally saying this is what God wants. This is God's plan. And either you submit and surrender to God's plan and enjoy the relative uh, peace that comes. And I say relative because they did have to send taxes to Nebuchadnezzar. They had to send money there. They did have to submit some of their people for the governing under Nebuchadnezzar. Um, But if they didn't rebel, uh, they would still have a good living in the land. Whereas if they did rebel, they weren't really going against a king. They're going against, did you hear it? God's servant, Nebuchadnezzar. Not how we like to describe those unbelievers who have authority over us, is it? God's servants. I haven't found very many in the Christian community referring to any of our government leadership as God's servants over us. Now remember, if you're a people of Israel, is Nebuchadnezzar someone you're really going to applaud very much at this point? No, he's going to come and destroy your temple. Carry away all the articles eventually. Not just, he's not going to attack Jerusalem once, but three times. And carry away all the wealth. And he's going to take your best and brightest and take them to his town and educate them in his ways, um, of the, the ways of the Chaldeans. Um, this is not a guy that you are going to look pleasantly upon. And yet God, through his servant, say, or through his prophet, says, he is my servant doing my will. I am with him. Now brace yourself for that one. Let it sink in. This is well before Nebuchadnezzar has his epiphany, if you will, where he comes to get to know the God of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, This is man out there to conquer the world. The servant of the Lord, doing his bidding. Because judgment was the bidding God had for him. Before we are ready to speak evil of dignitaries and those that have authority over us, whether it's on a very local level of your parents or husband, that's about as local as it gets, right? Right in your home. Or within your community or your workplace or your school or your nation or your world, 
Think carefully about what you're doing. We have a responsibility, certainly, to give them the truth, to communicate them the word of the Lord, um, but we do so in a very respectful manner, and really for their benefit, ultimately, is our desire not to try to destroy them, but to root out of them and to pull down within them that arrogance that leads them against God. But if we ourselves are harboring such rebellion, that we are unwilling to see or perceive that these in authority are servants of God in our life, how can we possibly do this kind of ministry? And you're going to find Jeremiah, even though he has given this statement, says that uh, you um, need to not be cower before them. I, not, there it is, verse 17 um, speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. As long as you aren't dismayed before them, if you're speaking the word of the Lord with boldness and courage, um, but that doesn't mean with disrespect and dishonor, but rather that you are in a, act, in a place of submission, you are a place of recognizing the working of God, and now your purpose is to do them benefit by rooting out of their life the very rebellion that you have run it out of your life. And if we harbor that kind of rebellion, if we harbor that kind of idolatry, if we harbor that kind of worldliness in us, how can we ever be expected to have an influence on the nations to root it out of them? Certainly, Jeremiah's primary ministry is to the people of God in Judah and Jerusalem. We don't doubt that. And yes, this kind of a message is to Christians first. But the evidence is, is that God's expectation is, is that it would begin among first the prophet, then his people, and then the nations, that we would root out those things of the world that have sent sometimes some very deep tap roots, some very expansive uh, and encompassing roots in our life that just touch everything that we look, sound, and dress, so much of the philosophy of this world that there is hardly any evidence that we are interested in another. If this is what is prevalent in us, then we can't reach the nations. It's impossible. It's foolishness. And so we begin at home, but with a perspective that we want to go beyond here in the church and rooting it out of us, but we root it out of us that we might then humbly point others to the truth and see it rooted out of them, to see it pulled down, destroyed and thrown down. All for a purpose, and that purpose is a very positive one. So far we've had four kind of negative statements. We're going to root out, we're going to pull down, we're going to destroy, we're going to throw down. Um, And yes, the deconstructive effort has to be extensive. Why? Because the roots have so extensively and so deeply penetrated us that sometimes we can't even distinguish that what we are really chasing after in our life is foolishness, it's it's vanity, that that it's nothing. It's something that will last a little while and be gone, and and then what? And well, should we be regular readers of Ecclesiastes to find out what is worth 
striving after versus what the world offers. But because what the world offers is so much, so frequently thrown within us and we are so convinced of it, that happiness and joy is derived from those things, it takes a lot of work to root it out, to pull it down, to destroy and to throw down. All so that God can then plant and build. I reversed it. Build and plant. We do all of this seemingly devastating work, and it is hard work. And we're going to be doing it for weeks and months as I share as we go through Jeremiah. All this work to root this out. Why? So that we can let God build something in us, something lasting, something that will endure, that we'll see things planted in our lives that will bring forth fruit to his glory. What a sad state of affairs if we, like Israel, are leaning back, or in Judah, are leaning back and saying, well, I got my spiritual thing taken care of because I trusted in Jesus as my Savior. I prayed the prayer. I got the baptism. I'm a member of this church. And we sit back, and now we pursue the things of this world and think that therein is happiness. What foolishness that is. And that false security um, is of the devil. And there are going to be many in the lake of fire who are going to be looking up and saying, what happened? Just as there were many in Jerusalem being drug away naked, if they survived, Jerusalem asking, what happened? I thought that this place was impenetrable because it is the house of God. Even after the first defeat, they still were sure that if Nebuchadnezzar ever came back, we would deal with him then and God would strike him down. Yeah. We just got done reading in 27, chapter 28. Here comes a Hananiah, a false prophet that says, uh, he breaks Jeremiah's yoke and says, no, God's going to destroy Nebuchadnezzar before he can come. And Jeremiah's like, you're a fool. You broke a yoke of iron, or broke a yoke of wood, and God's going to replace it with a yoke of iron. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come back because you're still rebellious, and he's going to empty this temple mount. We falsely believe that we have all of our bases covered. We can live as we please in this world, and we have our lusts and desires after the things of this world, and they take the priority in our lives, and then we think that we can stand before the judgment seat of God that is coming soon and make a claim. And that claim is worthless because it's misfounded. We truly want God to build something in our life, to plant, that we might bring forth a harvest to him. We must root out that false claim. We must root out those ideas, those concepts, those philosophies, not only of worldliness, but of false assurance of our spiritual condition and cleanse the land, if you will. Break up the fallow ground, uh, get rid of the weeds, and prepare the soil for the working of God to build a sure foundation uh, and to plant that in our life that will produce fruit to his glory. This is what is necessary. And so, yes, it takes four negatives to accomplish God's two positives in your life. And the four negatives must come first and must be full. That is complete. 
They must run their full course before God will start to build. Before God will start to plant. It is the foolish builder and the foolish farmer who will go in to a half-prepared lot, to a half-prepared field, and seek to start building and start planting. Because the fact is that whatever he builds and plants will have to be destroyed. Because the field or the lot wasn't fully prepared. And so Jeremiah will have to have this work, not just for Judah and Israel, um, or for Jerusalem, but also for the nations around. This is the authority of God's word, and we must let it work in us, in, uh, here, in this place, in our lives, in our homes, in this community called Desert Hills Baptist Church, long before we can think that it can be extended by us to our neighbors. And now I'm going to shift radical gears on you. Because verse 11 has the word of the Lord come to Jeremiah. After his calling and having his mouth purified and ready for this ministry, we have a very simple, very pointed, short word. Not for the people, but for Jeremiah. So he understands his purpose. Verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And Jeremiah, among all the prophets, is probably the most interactive with God. I've shared that with you, and I'll share that many, many times before we're done again and again. God asks him a question, and Jeremiah responds, I see a branch of an almond tree. That doesn't mean a lot to us, right? Okay, we're going to get to that. And the Lord said, you've seen well, for I am ready to perform my word. And that's it. The word of the Lord is going to come another time uh, within that same event, but we're going to look at that more next week. He comes and he says, what do you see? And he presents before him um, a scene. And that scene is, is described by Jeremiah as I see a branch or a limb or a, a, a young tree, perhaps, of an olive. I'm sorry, of an almond tree. I see this before me. Uh, Some think it's, it's a broken off rod of it, um, but I think the translator did a better job in just seeing that this is a branch of an almond tree. And that means nothing to us a lot um, because we are no longer really very agrarian. And so we've lost touch with a lot of the uh, symbols of an agrarian community that marked time not by their iPhones and not by daylight savings time and when it comes and goes and not by the months of the year named after Roman gods, um, but rather by the flowering and the blooming and the harvesting and the cycles of the earth and of the vegetation around them. So when you're presented with an almond tree, um, let's just share a little bit about almond trees. Uh, In the nation of Israel, uh, they were among the very, very, very first to bloom. So what 
God has just presented Jeremiah with is the earliest bloom of the season. Here is one of the earliest blooms. But the almond tree also takes a very long time before it gets to producing a nut that you're going to drop and eat. And so here's the earliest bloom of a tree that really has a pretty long gestation period from blooming to harvest. Um, and you're going to see it. And there it is. And so what is God communicating to Jeremiah here? In the midst of his calling, he gives him uh, the premise that I have purified your mouth. He gives him the, the, the scope of his audience, that is the nations. He gives him the purpose of his uh, message, and that is to root out, pull down, destroy, and throw down uh, so that he can build and plant. And now he's going to give him the timing um, where are we at in this plan? And of course, we all want to know the timing. Where is this all at? Um, and we neglect all the other things that were so important already. And so God's going to say, we're at the very beginning. We are at the very early stages. And by the way, God on regular occasions give the, give the prophets at least conceptually an idea of chronology. Um, whether it's... Uh, many days hence, or in the last days, or not long hence, or in that day. Um, Those terms are being brought up, and in this uh, place, God is giving some indication of what's confronting Jeremiah. Chronologically speaking, what are we talking here, Lord? Are we talking, how quick do I have to do this job? Um, How how fast is this going to happen, that I'm going to root up... uh, pull down, destroy, throw down, uh, build and plant. How long is the process? And God says, um, I want you to look at an almond tree. And it's not quite in bloom yet, but it's ready to bloom. It's budding, essentially. And the connection is certainly to the budding rod of that we saw back in the days of Moses and Aaron. Um, but uh, the idea here is that we are in the earliest budding stages of the earliest spring tree. But let there be no doubt, it's spring. And this is one of the markers that things are turning the corner weather-wise. The almond tree is budding. The almond tree is blooming. And here it comes. The season is coming. But we're in the very earliest times of it. But there is a confidence because of that, that what is coming is sure. And so in verse 12, the Lord says, out of that understanding, because these people were agrarian in their society, in their, in their culture, he understood to some degree what it meant. And he says, I am ready to perform my word. And by that um, and the word ready there sounds like he's about just going to, boom, make it happen next. But that's not really what the word entails. The, the word is that God is alerted. He's alerting Jeremiah that he is watchfully preparing to do this work. And some versions will actually, or in, probably in your margin, uh, at least in my margin, it uses the word watching. I am watching to perform my word. And that is that these are the very earliest stages of your prophecies. And this process that I've described by this, by this trio of doublets um, is going to take a while. 
but it is red. I'm I'm on the move. It is in the works. Spring is sprung. Has it come to its fullness? No. Is it in its very earliest days? Yes, but it has begun. And I am being watchful for pressing my word and for bringing an end to Israel, to bring an end of Judah and the land in, in, in this generation. And we have Jeremiah confronted with a chronology that begins to settle on him that this is a lengthy term of ministry he has required of him, that this is not something that's going to be accomplished in a few months or even a couple of years, but decades it will take. And yet the Lord begins early. And as it comes nearer and nearer the time, there will be a greater frequency, but it needs by God's mercy and grace towards his people, he begins very early to give them every opportunity to avoid what's coming. Here's the almond tree. I'm going to start with you early. I'm not just going to give you a few minutes to respond or I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to anticipate the completion of my word. I'm, I'm anticipating my judgment that's coming for you. I know it's coming. Now my prophet knows it's coming because here is the first sign. Here is the earliest evidence that we are transitioning from this period to this period. Here is the earliest bloom. The judgment of God is about to occur. The word of the Lord is going to be worked out. It is going to be enforced. It is going to come to be. Yes, there's going to be a time under Josiah that it's going to seem like, well, we have responded correctly and everything's good and now the Lord can go back and and doesn't have to bring his judgment upon us. But God knows the full story. He knows how superficial that was and how it was really on on just a few people that were involved in those reforms and in 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 those uh, repairs upon the temple and the reforms of Josiah that they were short-lived that they were not well rooted in the psyche of Judah and they never fully eradicated the idolatry that was still present in the land but the reforms of Josiah did not fully root out pull down destroy and throw down the sins of Judah. Were they in the right direction? Sure they were. But they weren't deeply enacted among the people. And so, Jeremiah, your job isn't going to be done in just five years from now when they're going to be repairing the temple and find the law of Moses and implement some of it and have a, a, a time of weeping and of, of national mourning um, because that's going to pass very quickly. And, and even though Josiah is going to reign for many years, um, his sons and, and grandson and son again are all going to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord. Um, and the people of Israel, even in the book of Jeremiah, they're going to say deplorable things to Jeremiah. While Josiah's reforms are going on, they're going to say hideous things to Jeremiah. Shut up or die. 
they're going to say things to Jeremiah like, we want to do whatever we want to do. And the Lord's just going to have to deal with it. They're going to say things like that to Jeremiah. So no, the reforms aren't enough to stop it. There needs to be a full completion of the work of rooting up, pulling down, of destroying and tearing down, throwing down, before God can build. And we have so short-circuited that process that we have these shabby houses and pathetic gardens that we think bring glory to God, but they're built on unfinished soil that still harbors all the disease of this world in its roots. And so our foundations are easily unsettled. Our gardens are easily destroyed by a hot sun. Because our ground really never stopped being fallow, unplowed. But God has given us some time. He comes early and often. He comes early and wants to say, here's the first signs. Here's the first evidence I am watching to perform my word. I am on the move. I am, I am pre- preparing myself and preparing you for what's coming. And you need to be about your work with the authority that I grant you. And the question is, is how far is he now in your life? This is when Jeremiah was still really a child in his own mind. He was still very young. He had 40 years of ministry plus ahead of him. God says, this is the beginning of the new. This is the beginning of this work, and it's going to take your lifetime to complete. But we are not so foolish to come to this verse and think that in our experience that we are at the beginning. Are we? That we are seeing just the first signs of God's movement towards judgment in our society and even in our own lives, in our homes, in our churches. The fact is there has been and continues throughout many decades now Those who have risen up and says, we must go this direction. We must break up this fallow ground. We must eradicate these things from our our philosophy of ministry, from our philosophy of living. 
We must be less and less like the world and more and more like Christ. And they have been declaring it for decade after decade. And we have grown dull of hearing it. And we have pushed them to the sides and said, we don't want to hear that anymore. We want to line up for ourselves men that we want to hear. That will tell us what we want to hear. That will tell us how to have wealth and to have false security. How to have material and how to have false hope. How to have the pleasures of this world and have falsely pleasing God the whole time. This is what we want to line up. We are well past the time of the almond tree. But I want you to know that God presents the almond tree to show that the time has begun. And by his mercy, it will be a full season before he brings judgment. But let there be no mistake, the season has started and it will have an end. And as it had that for the days of Jeremiah, I have seen consistently throughout God's word that he extends that same mercy in each of his coming judgments, giving 40, 50, 60, sometimes 100 years of fair warning. Yeah? For a hundred years, Noah preached, and no one but his family listened. A hundred years warning. And the world perished. We have had decades of warnings from our spiritual forefathers in this age who have decried the worldliness of the church, who have decried the easy believism that the gospel has become, the foolishness of false sureness, that if I have a church's membership and a baptismal certificate, and even if it's from the Jordan, that must be better, that I've got God by the throat and now I can live how I want. Yes, we've had decades of warnings. And I read these men from the late 1800s, from the early 1900s, looking at their society and looking at the church and being sorely concerned about their condition and saying, how much longer can the Lord tolerate it? And now we are at this point, some hundred years later, and saying... Boy, I wish for those godly days back then. When the preachers back then thought they were godless. And we look back and say, well, godly times. We look back and say, oh, to live in a land where alcohol is illegal. That was this land. The preachers of that day saw the decadence and wickedness around them and decried it even during the time of prohibition. You see, God has always been merciful to begin the process of warning early. 
And unfortunately, we're going to see in the course of Jeremiah's 40 years of ministry something that we have seen in this nation in the last, at the minimum, 50 years. And I say at the minimum because that's really beginning in 62, some of the public manifestations of what was going on in the privately for many years in order to make it public. To make it to the point that we kick prayer and the Bible out of our schools in the early 60s, um, that didn't come from nowhere out of the blue. That came from decades of preparation, of undermining our idea of the authority of God's Word. And yes, the authority of God's Word does extend to all nations, whether they are based on Islam, Christianity, secularism. It is not relevant The word of the Lord is over the nations. They serve at his will. So those early days are gone. God has been merciful to us. Give us this warning for these many years. And the real question I ask of you is, how long is the almond tree now? It's well past its bloom. It is well past its season of growth. It is nearing the days of harvest. For God has been very merciful to us. And we have not responded by rooting out, pulling down, destroying, or throwing down so that God could build and plant in us. But rather, we have responded like Israel and silenced our prophets, slaughtered them, Listen to those who told us what we wanted to hear, even while experiencing tastes of the judgment of God. We hold up our head haughtily and say, we will do what we want to do. So the warning is strong and powerful, but I want you to see the mercy and grace of God in the midst of it. He wants to build and he wants to plant. Isn't that great? He wants to warn so that when he looks and is watching, he can see those that be delivered and he does deliver them. There we're going to be introduced in the book of Jeremiah to a handful of young men, really young men who are going to save Jeremiah's life one day. And I'm convinced in the midst of that we are being introduced to Daniel and his friends. We're called princes of the land. Some are listening, but not enough to dissuade God from the judgment that he has set the course upon many decades earlier. The almond tree has bloomed. And now it is time for us to see it come in full season. And our responsibility on a personal level is to prepare a heart's soil for God to build and plant on. That we might be delivered from the judgment that is sure to come because the season is far past. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. And we do see your judgment coming. And we do not 
often recognize it. We just talk about going home to heaven and the joys that await us, and we sing of it, and we don't often think of that that coincides with a time of judgment that the earth has never seen. And so, Lord, you've given us much more of your scriptures on your judgment than on your reward. We have not really used it to root up, to pull down, to destroy, or to throw down. We have just accepted the false, empty hope of religious practice and dismissed the idea of your judgment on unfollowed soil. Lord, we pray that we might break up our hearts. Through the course of this study and each study, every time we are in your word, we break up our hearts and let you penetrate them, that we might have our hope not in anything of this earth, but of the one to come. That we might take every opportunity to prepare not only our lives, but others to receive your goodness, to build and to plant. And Lord, we thank you for your mercy. You have shown it. We have been in a state of extraordinary blessedness in this nation to have many dozens, indeed hundreds, of godly men who have historically preached your word and spoken against the evil of this age. And while they may be rare in these days, we stand upon a heritage of them that does not give us protection but gives us accountability. We know that this is a land due for judgment. And Lord, we pray we might not walk amongst it with the false hope that our religious practice is sufficient. That our relationship and our heart is not given to you, that you have built and planted on soil properly prepared. Lord, help us that we might live as those anticipating your judgment with fear. That we might walk worthy of your grace and mercy toward us. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.